like his stuff it, it kind of it very much felt like I was seeing a missing piece of a puzzle um, because obviously so that's like, interesting like your obviously your knowledge of the continuity of you know the tattoo history as art history is much more solid than mine but it kind of it kind of really fit in between you know the traditional stuff and the japanese stuff that was going on in you know the 60s and the 70s and then kind of the stuff when you get into the 90s the real like gnarly fantasy stuff that is like a small bit of a holdover of the 90s or of the 80s that's kind of being referenced now by quite a lot of artists if you look at someone like um sammy hellride who does a lot of my tattoos he's pulling quite heavily from irons stuff and it just kind of it just really slotted in with the idea of like high fantasy dungeons and dragons psychedelia kind of what happens when the acid trip goes bad type of tattooing that's such an interesting way of putting it and i literally hadn't thought about that because yeah he i mean he literally bridges those worlds right like he grew up in the psychedelic 60s watched the summer of love go bad and turn into vietnam and the post-war consensus rot and become like basically become the 70s like become the 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 racially divided dropout culture of 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 the late 70s um and then yeah gets into tattooing in early 80s and brings with him this kind of fantasy hippie kind of vibe with all that cynicism and humor and anger and frustration um and all these drawings he'd been doing of like you know for kids coloring books to pay the bills <laughs> yeah and like it but it's really interesting in like in the continuity of art like going into the 70s and i recently was on another podcast talking about the, like the punk movement in the mid to late 70s and that like this kind of cultural nihilism that set in when you saw that the like the 60s didn't bring about the revolution either socially or politically as people spouted it would and it's kind of like well, none of this stuff came to pass. There's nothing left. It's kind of like you're staring down the barrel of the end of the world. Yeah, and and I it, I teach a lot about this in my standard art history class. This moment of time, right? Because, um, and there's there's which maybe we'll get into uh, later on. There's also a really interesting reason or, or a set of reasons to think about why this movement. Some of them became super crazy right wing. Like libertarians. Well, actually, I, 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 on on that episode, I had a, I have a pet theory that is there is like two sides of the coin when you have cultural movements like that. You have people who are revolutionaries versus reactionaries, and it's like if you have no actual like political underpinning to your rebellion against whatever you know you're rebelling against, you are just a reactionary. You're just reacting to everything that's around you rather than here is a co- coherent political ideology or not even ideology, but like train of thought that is supporting your actions. Yeah. And this is a period, you know, mid sixties, certainly to, to, by the time we get to 68, 69 with Stonewall and with um, May 68 in France and student riots and all of the youth rebellion movements from everywhere from Mexico to Prague. Um, 
all of which are basically young generations frustrated that the promise as they saw it of, of World War Two uh, and the New World Order, the global consensus that had arrived and the promises that they were made just basically went to shit um, with with the rise of neoliberalism and globalism. So, so yeah, I hadn't thought about that way before, but Irons' arc it traces that pretty much exactly, really. So... Um, Maybe I'll start, actually, before we read his biography. I want to read you this little quote about him from um, uh, Hardy's book, Where Your Dreams. This is about 1979, I think. Sorry, Doug. I'll correct this later on in the episode if I get it wrong. Don't email me just yet. (laughs) Um, Greg was a genius from the underground cartoon scene. His Yellow Dogs comics rank with Crumb's Zap comics as a classic of the era. He lived in London and has worked as an art slave on the Beatles animated movie Yellow Submarine. He drew psychedelic posters for the Fillmore Auditorium and album covers for the Jefferson Airplane. He was a terrifically talented artist and was living on peanuts and decided to tattoo to tattoo after airplane guitarist Jaw McCulconnen told him what he paid for his tattoo work. What <laughs> what is is perfectly that kind of pathway of you know, working as an art slave on Yellow Submarine, like the Beatles, the epitome of the hippie movement, you know. Right. And he, so um, Hardy goes on to say, Bob Roberts and I met Greg long before he segued into tattoos. And when he did, he became famous faster than anybody ever had in this business. <laughs> he had a unique graphic style fresh to tattooing. My work was primarily about introducing new imagery, expanding the medium, making it more painterly, opening up to more expressive visions. But Irons came out with a strong, instant identif- identifiable graphic style all of his own. I'll return to that later on, but that's 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 basically kind of a good intro that he became famous in the tattoo scene more than ever, but to get famous otherwise was a slow process. Um, so he was born um, in 1947 um, and his family moved to Philadelphia um, in 1957 when he was 10 years old. And like his brother and people that knew him at the time and his family described that like from a very, very young age, He's starting to like do cartoons and to do comics and to do stuff that was funny. Um, he also like clearly obviously had a kind of dark side. Like there's this story right in the beginning of the Rosencrantz book where um he was deeply afraid of being carried off or killed by some maniac. Um <laughs> One of his friends said, we came from a long line of dark characters, three alcoholic uncles, one suicide, all kinds of gothic stuff. Greg and I referred to it as the Iron's Curse, right? So he has this kind of darkness, but also this humor. He made friends easily, says his brother, but there was a streak of mean-spiritedness there. And that comes across a lot in his work too. He had a real Mm. biting, satirical sense of humor. His parents told him to bring his grades up or else, but he was too, too cool for school. Cigarettes, booze, and party girls became extracurricular activities. Um, he gets sent to military school for a year <laughs> uh, to try and straighten up, and as you imagine, uh, that doesn't, doesn't go, go well. doesn't go so well. Um, but it did kind of give him this philosophical awakening. So he realised that, oh shit, right, I'm here now. This means I'm going to end up going to Vietnam. Right, this is real now. Yep. This shit is real. Um, he was first tattooed uh, in um, uh, the early 60s, I think. Uh, no, sorry, mid-60s, with the word tattoo. <laughs> <laughs> I 
Very meta. Yeah, which became infected the day after he got it. <laughs> even even more meta. Exactly. So this is like, there's this poetry in his biography. When a friend from the old neighborhood came home from the war, he looked Greg up. He told Greg about being a point man in Vietnam where he had to crawl ahead of the rest of the guys and the Viet Cong came along and he was out of the bushes and he's going to step right over him. When he came back from Vietnam, he developed colitis from post-traumatic stress. He held it all together all the way through, but when he got home, he had acute diarrhea for months and was completely fucked up. He was Greg's best friend when they were seven in the old neighborhood. Um, and so, yeah, Greg was just like, oh, this is going to, I'm going to end up having to go go to Vietnam. Um, yep. And I, I don't think he actually does end up going um, to Vietnam. But he he's clearly aware that it's fucking possible, right? Like, it's imminent. And he realizes he's got nothing going in his life. He's, he dropped out of high school. Um, and he realized that, like, yeah, he was going to have to, like, deal with the fact that this country he was in and this place he was in and the world that he was in all of a sudden had all this complexity and danger and and horror in it that, that he didn't want to be part of. And I think, you know, there's this kind of, again, discussion in the first section of the book, in uh, Rosencrantz's book, where his brother's basically like, look, it was like the fear of going to Vietnam or the context of the world around him 